The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O blessed Lord Jesus, who for the redemption of the world walked the way of the cross and bore in your sinless self the sins of the many, grant that we, following in your footsteps, may obtain increase of your love and walk all the days of our life in your paths, who now lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Good to be with you. Uh, last time we were together, I took you through a number of things in the Gospel of Mark uh, that in one way or another emphasize that our baptism puts us on the path to death with Christ, and if it would be God's will, even martyrdom. I'm gonna kind of pick up that theme here today, staying in the Gospel of Mark, and taking you through the passion of our Lord in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel is written at a time of persecution uh, in the aftermath of the great fire in Rome in 64 AD and Nero putting the blame for the fire on the Christians in Rome. And Mark is in Rome at the time. We know that from the end of the letter called First Peter. And we also know from a, a lot of things from second century documents that Mark heard the preaching of Peter and that in many respects, the Gospel of Mark reflects the teaching that he got from the Apostle Peter, who himself was martyred in Rome by crucifixion in October of 64 AD. So, I'm going to take a look at some scenes from the Passion of Jesus in Mark. And as I always tell my students, uh, when we look at any of these episodes, uh, there are really two questions that each episode <laughs> demands of us. One, what does the text say about Jesus? Assuming Jesus is in the narrative. What does it say about Jesus? And then the second question is going to be, there's always another context. And that's the context of what the first readers are going through and how does that resonate with their situation. So we've got to think of the Gospels being written just like Paul's letters. Paul would rather be with the people that he's writing to, but he can't, so he writes a letter. And thus is dealing with specific concerns, issues that are going on in their congregation, like the Corinthians or the Galatians, whatever. Same thing is true than for Mark's first readers. There's a reason why he writes the gospel and why it's addressed to those particular individuals in Italy in the aftermath of the fire in Rome and the Romans putting the blame for the fire on Christians and executing them. So, the passion of, of, uh, of our Lord in Mark opens up with chapter 14 with a statement of the, the plot to do away with Jesus. They're trying to find a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Very short. Next episode is a little longer. It takes place in Bethany, which is, oh, maybe about two miles from Jerusalem. It's the uh, residence we know of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
But in this particular case, we are told that Jesus is reclining for dinner in the house of one Simon the leper. Don't know much more about this individual. But we are told, uh, this, is, this is in the aftermath of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the Palm Sunday event. We are told that a woman came with an alabaster jar of costly scented oil made from pure nard. Breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head. Some were indignant. Why waste this costly oil? It could have been sold and given to the poor. They started snarling at her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering me? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor. You won't always have me. She did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. So obviously Jesus is interpreting her actions as She's doing something uh, that's uh, kind of a premonition of what's yet to come. That is, of course, the death and the burial of Jesus. And she is the first to do the anointing for Jesus' burial. We aren't told exactly what the woman thought she was doing. Only the interpretation Jesus gives to it. So we understand Jesus is interpreting her actions in a particular way. I said we always need to ask two questions. The other question is, what on earth does this have to do with the first Christians who will hear this after the Gospel of Mark is published and given to their assembly? Well, interesting the language that is used here. She pours it on his head. Would those early Christians have ever had oil poured on their head? Or maybe just applied to their head, if you don't like the pouring part. If you're going to be present at the uh, 1130 divine service, we will do that, because we've got a baptism. So we know from umpteen number of sources that the early Christians did use oil as part of the baptismal rites, and actually quite a lot of it. By the time we get to the second century, there'll be three anointings, one of which is a full body anointing in the nude before one goes down into the water. Symbolic of, well, olive oil was used for everything in the ancient world, including athletes. When you're working out, it's your deodorant as well as uh, other things. It's used by wrestlers, so your opponent doesn't get a good grip on you. But of course, your opponent's got you know, the same plan. Okay. So this is one way that the church says, uh, we don't want the devil getting a hold on you. But there are other anointings as well. One of them is simply on the head, exactly as it's being described here. So this is not some strange scene that Mark's readers would be hearing. This is exactly what has already happened to them. And then Jesus' words, she did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is another way of Mark now communicating to the hearers, the readers of this gospel, <coughs> what their own baptism is really all about. It's leading them to their grave.
but preparing it beforehand for burial. And this is, this oil is called scented oil. Some of the other gospels talk about that the house is filled with the fragrance, that thus dying for Christ is a beautiful and sweet smelling thing. It's a beautiful thing. The pastor of the congregation, which I was a member when I lived in New York, would use a, a rather copious amount of oil for the anointing after baptism. And, really, and it was actually a pouring, not just a little dab will do you. It's a glug, glug, glug. Take a long time to get that washed out. Uh, but, and was heavily scented. What, heavily scented. He'd put, it, he'd put the, the bottle under, under the nose of the person first so they get it all in. Sometimes I could smell that for about 12, 12 feet away. Um, so, we're, part of what baptism does then is to prepare us for our death with Christ, our burial with Christ. Then, as we uh, continue down with the text, we're told of a contract with Judas. Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them, and uh, they agreed to pay him with silver and he looks for an opportunity to betray him. Uh, we have Jesus' instructions to make ready to eat the Passover Seder on the day we call Monday Thursday, and the disciples do that, flipping the page. We are now at the supper, where we're gonna get a number of things. Probably the most important thing that we would say happens at the Last Supper is the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. That's the most memorable thing. But there are other things that happen there too. Um, but I think we have to, that our, our first go-to is what, what's really important is, is going to be also thus in the back of the minds of the first readers of Mark's Gospel. Because they, like us, what do they hear on Sundays when they get together? Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So now we're getting the narrative of that here. But it's not starting with the institution of the sacrament. We get the prediction of the betrayal. So we've already heard that Judas has made a deal. He's now at the table. When it was evening, he, Jesus, comes with the twelve. While they're reclining and dining, Jesus said, Amen, I tell you, one of you eating with me will betray me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one by one, surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping with me in the bowl. The Son of Man goes as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he hadn't been born. So, again, my two questions. So what does it say about Jesus? So what does Jesus know? He, he knows someone will betray him. Does Jesus know who it is? Yes, yes. Uh, it's a rather ambiguous about one who dips his hand in the bowl with me because this is all communal dipping food they've got. Kind of like Ethiopian food, if you've ever had Ethiopian. It's all, it's, you know, it's all on the table. So what does Jesus not do? Expose him. Why not? He, he, he makes this announcement, one of you is going to betray me, and you know, th this is a big deal, folks, okay? But he doesn't name names or point fingers. Why? 
Well, in, in a certain sense, it has to happen. Yes, yes. So how would saying, and it's this guy, Judas, how would that prevent it from happening? He doesn't want the other people to stop him. He doesn't, exactly. Why? The other disciples to stop him. Yeah, so the other disciples will jump him. They'd prevent it. We, earlier in the gospel, Jesus has announced uh, you know, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem, and Peter says, this will never happen to you. So they're, they're still on that kind of mindset. So Jesus knows that where he must go, and thus he does nothing to prevent it from playing it out. He lets it play out. Now, what's the parallel with the first readers of Mark's gospel? When they gather on Sunday morning, what do they do? Yeah, don't kick the guys out. Yeah, exactly, because they also in, are in a parallel situation. So this is the Last Supper, the First Lord's Supper, which is now being repeated on Sundays among Christian groups, including those in Italy. And keep in mind that it's also a meal. We haven't had the meal separated from the sacrament yet. So there literally is a dipping into the bowl at their Holy Communion. So is this not then saying there could be a betrayer among you? That's a very real situation in 64, 65, 66 AD in the environs of Rome. Somebody may be paid to turn you in. What did Jesus do about it? Nothing. He let it play out. The message is you let it play out as well. We can't look into people's hearts. We can go by what they say, by what they do, but some things we don't know. Then there are going to be a number of things where uh, we see Peter involved. Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. It's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. After I'm raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter retorted, everyone else might fall away, but I won't. Jesus, amen, I tell you, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. But Peter protested vehemently, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same. Of course, that's there to, of course, set up what we know is coming, which will be Peter's famous denial. And do keep in mind that this is, in many respects, Peter's gospel, as I said at the beginning. After the Lord's Supper, the group goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Peter will have another role to play here. Then they come to the place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He takes Peter, James, and John along with him. He began to be deeply troubled and distressed. He says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and kept praying that, if possible, the hour might pass by him. Um, the, the language here is, is quite interesting. First, Mark is very graphic about he fell to the ground, unlike a lot of 
paintings where I've seen Jesus leaning against a rock and a light from heaven is shining on him and his hair has been all, all nice and tidied up and flowing robes. Yeah, it's very graphic. And Luke even goes to the, to the point of saying that Jesus sweated so profusely, it was, he compa Luke compares it to great drops of blood falling to the ground. It's Luke, Luke's way of saying the suffering of Jesus is beginning here with this struggle he's got in prayer, right? He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me. He wanted the hour to pass by him. That's kind of Passover language. This is like you, the Hebrews uh, getting the angel of death to pass by them, pass over them, not enter the house of the Hebrews. Okay, so he's, Jesus is, it's Passover and Jesus is evoking that kind of language. But death is going to come straight at him. So what, do we, what does this tell us about Jesus? He has the same kind of struggles we do, right? Okay, he is as human as you and I. And thus he's, he's, he's asking, you know, take this cup away from me. It's metaphoric, of course. He means the suffering. Remove it. That cup of God is mentioned all the time in the prophets. The, the cup of God's wrath. It's his judgment. Uh, he doesn't. He said, I don't want to drink this. Is, is there a plan B here? But he adds, yet not what I want, but what you want. If that's what you want me to do, I will do it. Okay. Now you've got to be thinking, second question, in terms of the, uh, the, uh, what's going on with the first readers of Mark's gospel. You've got to be thinking, okay, they are struggling with the same kind of a prayer. Is it okay to pray? Lord, I don't want to see a lion's mouth tomorrow. I'm, I'm sure they're struggling with that kind of thing. Can I ask that kind of prayer or not? This gives them license to do so. It's okay to ask God questions. We'll see it on the cross. Okay. So it's okay to say, God, can you get me out of this? But I'll do it if that's what you want. Your will be done. So this becomes as a model. So, so much of what we've got here in the Passion in Mark uh, presents Jesus as the model of how to act in a parallel situation. If you were, if you were to press me and say, Pastor, um, what's the meaning of Christ's death in the Gospel of Mark? I'd say, can you ask me that about John instead? <laughs> Because honestly, okay, it's the, honestly, the only verse we've got in Mark that really says, in other words, interprets the death of Jesus is the verse, he, um, he, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's it. Everything else is focused on Jesus as a model of what to do when you're in a similar situation. Now, other Gospels will be much more theological about interpreting, you know, the deeper significance of what's happening to Jesus. But, but Mark is interested in what's happening to his readers. Okay. So this gives them license to pray as Jesus prayed. Then he comes to the disciples, finds them sleeping, says to Peter, so we've already heard that prediction of Peter's denial already, says to Peter, and notice how Jesus addresses him. Huh. Simon, are you sleeping? 
But Jesus had renamed him Peter, Rock. But here Jesus reverts to his old name, his pre-baptismal name, if you will. Once upon a time, you got your name when you were baptized. So it's that kind of thing, is reverting back to the, the, the name this man had before Jesus called him to be his disciple. Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, the incident just before about Jesus praying reminded the readers about their praying. They really didn't need to be reminded, okay, because that's, that's all they've been doing, you know, for the last several months is praying because of what might happen when they hear the knock on the door in the middle of the night. So now the, the question comes, how do I negotiate this? How do I get, how do I deal with my situation correctly? Jesus is telling them to now watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. Peter, of course, famously doesn't. He sleeps, as do all the rest. The implication is, if you were to spend your time praying instead of sleeping, the temptation could have been avoided. And there are many instances like that. So we, sh we shouldn't think of this, because Jesus had predicted it earlier, therefore it's inevitable that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And we shouldn't think that way. There's a place for prayer. There's a place for prayer, and it doesn't have to play out that way. I think it's really important to hear it that way. So uh, thus Peter is given a warning here, as are the Christians who are first hearing this. I know your flesh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray. And again returning, he found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy. They didn't know what to say. Hmm. Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. It's all over. The hour has come. Eventually the hour comes, okay? And the opportunity for praying is over. That's a very sobering kind of statement. Okay? So use the time you've got wisely. Why do they sleep? The Bible never really says. I, I'd offer two things. One, uh, one, they've just had a really big meal. Passover is a really big deal. Think Thanksgiving dinner, right? What do you do on Thanksgiving afternoon? Take a nap, yeah, take a nap. Okay. So, uh, Jesus, of course, instituted the Lord's Supper, taking the bread and the wine that was part of the Passover. But there's a lot of wine on the table, too. Just telling you. And maybe they sleep to try and cover up the ominous. Right? Maybe if, maybe if I just sleep, the bad stuff will go away. All this talk about Jesus and what of you will betray me and all that, maybe that'll all go away if I wake up in the morning and everything will be fine. So that's kind of my take on that. Then, okay, so the let, get up, let's go. Uh, so they're, they're leaving the spot of prayer and immediately, Mark loves that word, by the way, immediately. He uses it 42 times in his gospel. 
11 times in chapter 1 alone, immediately. While he's still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrives, accompanied by a crowd with swords, clubs, sent by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss is the one you want. Arrest him and lead him away securely. So having arrived, Judas immediately went up to him and he says, Rabbi, and kissed him firmly. They took hold of him and arrested him. Huh. What does Jesus do? Does Jesus fight it? No, he again lets it play out. What's going on with the readers of Mark's gospel? We've got a kiss here, folks. Have Mark's first Christian readers ever done any kissing? Actually, they've probably done a lot of kissing. This is the Mediterranean world. Folks in the Mediterranean kiss. Okay. The only question is, how do they kiss? <coughs> that depends on who you're kissing. <laughs> if you were to kiss someone of a higher social standing, like your teacher, you would kiss on the hand. If you're kissing a friend, like they still do in Italy and France and places like that, where do you kiss? On the cheek. And then the only question is once, twice, thrice, okay. You know, uh, how about relatives? Huh. Where does grandma want to be kissed? <laughs> Don't kiss grandma on the cheek because she's not your friend, okay? Don't kiss grandma on the hand because she's not your teacher. She wants it on the lips. The early Christians kissed a lot too in church. Mm, it's, uh, it's, it's evolved into the polite handshake to the person in the pew in front and behind you now. In the early church, it was a kiss. Four times at the end of Paul's letters and at the end of 1 Peter, the statement is, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's not a command to greet one another with a kiss because they're going to be doing that. The, que the question is, make it holy. So which method do the Christians use? Since they're brothers or sisters in Christ. On the lips, on the lips. Men with men, women with women. Their umpteen sermons from the early church would say, during the kiss, the deacons are watching. Don't go back for a second one and don't make it too long. Okay. Okay. <laughs> They're coming in for counseling on Monday. All right. So, Mark's first readers are used to this and they're used to the kiss of peace in church. Interesting that, hmm, it's, which method did Judas use? He addresses Jesus as rabbi, which means teacher. Okay. I've, I've studied probably about 150 paintings of this scene, and I, I know of only one that shows Jesus, uh, Judas kissing Jesus on the hand. It's on a Roman Catholic church in uh, Miami, I believe. And I think that's probably the correct way. Mark, however, is ambiguous, right? He doesn't tell us where. I think that's so they can more easily 
associated with a kiss that they give and receive. So if, if Mark would have been explicit here in saying, and he kissed him firmly on the hand, well then that doesn't apply to me because I'm not kissing anybody on the hand in church. But by, not, but by leaving that out, they can now associate more closely with what they are doing. The point being, Jesus didn't stop the betrayal and the arrest, and neither should you. There's also another way of saying, another way of saying it is, someone in your assembly on Sunday may be the betrayer, and someone who gave you the kiss actually may be turning you in. Let it play out. Then, this passage has a number of little gems in it. Um, <laughs> One of those standing near drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Who does the ear cutting? How do you know that? I'll read it again. <laughs> One of those standing near drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Go back to the previous page. Page, bottom of page two. Immediately, while he's still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrives, accompanied by a crowd with what? Swords and clubs sent by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Then we've got the ear cutting. And Jesus responds to the ear cutting by saying, who's he talking to? Jesus said to them, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would a robber? Huh. The only way we know this is Peter is from the Gospel of John. Hmm. Did Simon Peter tell Mark, let's not put that in here? <laughs> Seems to be. Seems to be. Okay. Um, so, no mention, of, no mention of Peter here. One would, if all we have is the Gospel of Mark, get the impression that it is one of those coming to arrest Jesus who's kind of wild with the sword. Um, interesting thing, in, in, uh, in John's Gospel, where it does mention Peter, uh, we're told this little detail that it was the right ear that got cut off. I mean, who cares? Honestly, what dif does it make a difference? Now, if I'm going to cut off your right ear, I'm not going to get your ear. I'm going to kill you. Unless Peter's a lefty. Peter's a lefty. Which in that day and age was, had something kinky about it. Sorry I, um, for any lefties here. Only your right hand ever goes on the table to eat. No one ever put their left hand on the table. That's for hygienic purposes. Yeah, so there's something, the, the lefty is at somewhat of a disadvantage socially in the ancient world. But, so, but, but here, again, the, the bigger issue is that Jesus does nothing to stop it. Then all his disciples abandoned him and fled. A certain young man, though, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following Jesus. They tried to grab him, but he left the linen cloth and fled naked. Woo! This is only in Mark. Only in Mark. Some think this is Mark. This is Mark's cameo appearance. Like, 
I'm dating myself, but like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, appearing in his movies, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, so what is this? <clears throat> Why isn't he wearing any underwear? Um, that was not all that uncommon, by the way. Okay. He's doing the disciple thing. So last time I talked about that word follow, follow me, all over the place in Mark's gospel. He's trying to do the following Jesus thing. One of those who had come to arrest Jesus grabs his robe, intending to grab him, of course. They don't want his robe, they, to grab him. And now he's naked. And he flees. If you are going to follow Jesus, how far should you follow him? <laughs> like all the way? We had last time blind Bartimaeus who threw off his outer wrap and followed Jesus on the way. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow him. The reader of Mark's Gospel, of course, knows there are already Christians. They know Jesus was crucified. They also know that every crucifixion is done in the nude. It's humiliation, un unlike all the crucifixes we've ever seen, have a little you know, loincloth on Jesus. Jesus was totally nude. So if you're, going to, if you're going to follow Jesus, go to the cross with him. I think part of what's involved. Some of the imagery here is going to pop up later in the gospel. Uh, the word for linen cloth will be the same word used of, of what Joseph of Arimathea puts on Jesus. That's that same word. And it, this guy is called a young man, and that'll appear at the resurrection scene. A young man at the tomb announces the resurrection to the angels. Yes? Why would the healing of the guard not be included in this gospel? Yeah. <sighs> that, you're asking one of the most difficult questions, and, and, and that is, the, basically, why is something not there? It's much easier for me to come up with a reason why something is there than to say why it's not. Similarly, why isn't, why isn't Peter mentioned here? And the impression is given that it's not one of the disciples, but it's one of those who are coming to arrest Jesus that's, you know, you know flinging the sword around. So um, I can tell you why it is in Luke. It's Luke's gospel has the healing because Luke is the physician and he emphasizes Jesus' healing all the time. That's totally consistent with the rest of the Gospel of Luke, thematically. Okay, uh, so we're not done with Peter yet. <laughs> he is following at a distance. Very next episode. Peter followed him from a distance into the high priest's courtyard. He sits with the guards, warms himself by the fire. There we got that following word, he followed him. But can you follow Jesus from a distance? Can you follow Jesus and play it safe? We're never told in any of the Gospels why Peter is following Jesus. Does he think he can help Jesus? Or is he just nosy, wants the information about what's, what are they going to do to Jesus? You know, we just don't know. None of the Gospels really tell us why Peter is there. Jesus uh, will be put on trial first before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Council of Seventy, headed up by the high priest. They can't find witnesses whose testimony agrees. In a Jewish court, you always have to have two witnesses whose testimony agrees in order to convict somebody. The only other solution is to put the person on trial on the stand himself and try and get a confession out of him which is their only option here then, which is what they do. 
They asked Jesus then, have you no answer, no response to these charges against you? He kept silent and gave no reply. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I need a lawyer. No, I am. This is so stark because in the Gospel of Mark, over and over, we hear Jesus saying, don't tell anybody. Jesus will heal somebody, don't, don't tell me about it. About a half dozen times or more, Jesus does. And that's a feature of the Gospel of Mark, the secrecy motif, except here. It's all out in the open now. He's asked point blank about his identity. Are you the Christ? He says, I am. The other Gospels, Matthew, for example, says, um, you say so. Mark is much more straightforward at, at this point. And now, of course, the readers of Mark's Gospel are going to have a question asked of them too. Are you a Christian? Their response should be, I am. So this is exactly the parallel thing. We know this from early church records. Just answer, answer I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. And then Jesus says to the high priest, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. A paraphrase of a prophecy in uh, Daniel 7. The high priest knows exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's grabbing that prophecy and, and saying, it's me. Or in other words, he's saying to the high priest, one day our roles will be reversed, and you'll be on trial before me. The high priest gets it, and he rips his robes. He gets it. He doesn't agree with it, obviously. Then we got Peter's denial. While Peter is in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's slave girls approaches. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. He denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He went out to the gateway. A rooster crowed. Jesus had predicted before you deny me three times, the rooster will crow twice, right? He's at the gateway. Only Mark tells us this. What should Peter have done? Keep on walking, right? Okay. Why are you still hanging around? You've got the bell ringing in your ear. It's the rooster cry. So it's not inevitable that, Peter, that this has to play out. You've got a warning here. Peter, get out of here. Get out of here while you can, but he doesn't do it. Uh, two more quest questions are asked of the same thing. He started to curse and swear. I don't know the man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had told him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. And only Mark puts it this way. After he had thought about it for a bit, What's there to think about? He still wants to hang in there. He does. Maybe this wasn't so bad, you know. Is it? Come on, Peter. Come on, Peter. And then he began to cry. Matthew has he wept bitterly, but eh, uh, Mark doesn't quite go that far. Jesus is on trial for. Uh, before Pontius Pilate because the Jewish authorities do not want to con uh, execute him themselves. They could have asked permission to do, to do so. But they, they want the Romans to do it because they know everybody hates the Romans, so let the Romans kill Jesus and then no one will look at us. 
Uh, however, Jesus will have to be convicted under a new charge. Blasphemy won't work under a Roman court. Uh, so the charge now becomes treason. They bound Jesus, led him away, handed him to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Why the difference? Hmm. Pilate's asking a theological question as well as a political question. Now, of course, Pilate doesn't see it that way. He thinks he's just asking the political question. Are you, are you a king not authorized by Rome? Jesus would understand king of the Jews in a different sense. So there's a time and place for everything. When you're on trial, this is not the time to explain why you're a Christian. Just give the answer as Jesus did, I am, when asked about your identity. Are you a Christian? I am. So the, this is not the time to discuss theology when you're on trial. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to flip over to one last thing here. There's much more to be said here. Maybe at some later date. How close and personal all this gets for Mark's readers. Because there's a little detail in Jesus carrying the cross that is only in the Gospel of Mark. We're told that Jesus is mocked by the soldiers. And then that last sentence, or last second, two last sentences, a passerby, one Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, is coming in from the country. They conscript him to carry his cross. Apparently, the first hearers of Mark's gospel know who Simon of Cyrene is, or at least they know his kids, Alexander and Rufus. And lo and behold, we know they do, because Paul, writing to that same church earlier, said, greet Rufus. He's a member of the church in Rome. So in other words, these Christians know the son of the man who carried Jesus' cross. The one man who was blessed to do the most unique thing in all of world history, carry the blood-stained cross of Christ. And earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, of course, said, anyone who would follow me must do what? Take up his cross. There's one who did it literally which also means that anything bad they're doing to Jesus on this procession to execution, and the streets are lined with people throwing rotten tomatoes and spitting and cursing and swearing at, at Jesus. Now, now they're doing it also to Simon of Cyrene, a complete bystander, but who has connections also in this Roman church. So now it all comes together. Sorry, I've got to stop for time here, but I must do so. Okay. All right. Hopefully you can uh, add to this at some later date. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.